You guys doing okay? Yeah. All right. There's light now. All right. We're gonna be in. Uh, we're gonna be in the book of Jude for the next several weeks. So the book of Jude, if you don't, it's in the New Testament. It's right before the book of Revelation. It is called. A lot of people, a lot of commentators call this the forgotten letter because uh, it's just not read a whole lot. It's short. It's just 25 verses, and we're gonna be in there for just a few weeks in the book of Jude. And as we do that. Um, this is this is one of the best times of the church year. We are on, this is VBS week, Vacation Bible School week, okay? So you're going to get to see and participate in a lot of good stuff. Um, just be ready, social media, you'll be inundated with people with squid hats and masks and people, and this place is going to look like a submarine in about, you know, four hours, so it's going to be good stuff, okay? People have been making fake octopuses. People have been making fake jelly jellyfish. I think I should have said octopi. I'm not sure. Is that what it is? Okay, I realized as I was saying that, like, stupidity was coming out of my mouth. It's a good, good week. And um, we've been preparing for this week. Um, you know, when you... After you, if, you, if you had a long day, sometimes the only thing you want to do is sit down and watch television for just a little bit, let your brain just kind of turn into mush. And it depending on what channel you're watching, it depends on what commercial you're going to see. And I guess I was watching something in which Ancestry.com commercial came up a bunch of times. And I'll tell you what, I, I kept seeing this commercial, and it, kept, it just kept speaking to me. So I'm going to show you a commercial. I know that's weird, but... Can you bear with me for a second? We got it on there. Would what you are just... you? What are you? What are you? I probably got that question three to four times a week. I'd always get asked if I was Asian or Moroccan or something else. So I jumped at the chance to take the DNA test through Ancestry, and my results ended up being African, European, and Asian. It just confirmed what I guess people had seen in me all my life. I do feel like Ancestry helped give me a sense of identity. What are you? Now I know. Discover the story only your DNA can tell. Order your kit now at AncestryDNA.ca. There was two, that's the reason I was watching the court. There's two things she said that just like got in my skin, okay? Not bad, but just like I couldn't shake them. You ever had that where you just kept thinking about it, thinking about it? There's two things I could not shake, and here were the two ideas I could not shake from what she said. I know you're like, dude, that's a 30-minute commercial spot. What's your problem? But I'm telling you, it was just, it. she kept saying this, my finding out my ancestry gave me a sense of my identity, who I am. And then she says, at the end, what are you? And she says, now I know. And I, and I want you to, that passage of Scripture we just read a, few, a little while ago, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, if any man's in Christ, he is a new creation. That does not mean our ethnicities and backgrounds don't matter. In fact, before the throne of God, there will be people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. They will not lose their ethnicity, but they will all be gathered around the one true God worshiping him. God has people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. So our ethnicities do matter. Our cultures do matter, and they're all supposed to worship God, and every part of our ethnicity is supposed to be pointed towards him. However, there is something better. That's our ethnicities, we don't have to be defined by, by, by just our physical traits or just our cultural group. What we can be defined by, and if we are in Christ, ultimately that's what we are defined by. Our identity is in Christ. Who we are is found in him. And I want today, in the book of Jude, as we kind of unwrap this book at the very beginning, I want you to know something. Jude, who is the half-brother of Jesus, 
related to James, is now a servant of Jesus. In fact, if you look in the, if you look in the scriptures, um, that, uh, that there was a time where Je- Jesus' brothers didn't believe he was the Messiah. You know what changed that? The resurrection. He got up from the dead. And so they see him now as the glorious one, and they are preaching the gospel. So Jude comes here, and we're going to read here in a second. He's the one who write, writes this letter. He's writing this letter, and he's asking the people to contend for their faith, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And he's asking them to do that in the face of opposition of people who are preaching something false. And the way he begins this letter is not, he doesn't go right off from the very beginning going at, the people who are preaching false things, he actually tells the believers who they are in Christ. Look with me in Jude chapter 1. Jude chapter 1, he says this, Jude, a servant or slave of Jesus Christ, remember this is Jesus' half-brother, and he is not, doesn't even say that. He connects himself to James. He says, now I'm a servant of Christ. So the two major identities that Jude has are wrapped up in the fact that he serves Christ and that he's James' brother. James would be a leader of the Jerusalem church. And so his identity, we were talking about identity, remember that. He, that he's answering that question, who you are, okay? And Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So he identifies. This is a normal way to start a letter. How would we start a letter? Dear so-and-so. They didn't start letters like that. This is not the common way that, that in ancient times they started letters. So they started, Jude started this letter with identifying who he is, which actually kind of makes sense because where do we identify who wrote the letter now in our, in our way? At the end, which is funny because sometimes if it was at the end, it was somebody you didn't care about. You're like, why did I read that? Right? It kind of makes sense for them to put it up front, okay? <laughs> you, you read this long letter and it says Saddam Hussein, and you know, that would be really weird. But I mean, you wouldn't listen to that one, right? Because why? You don't care about that person. Well, he starts off and he tells who he is and he gives a little, he gives some of his, his identity. He says, I'm Jude. I'm a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ. And he's following in the lines of all the servant slaves of Christ. He's following in the lines of all of the people in the Old Testament and the New Testament who have served God. And so he says, that's my identity first off here. And then he goes, he says, I'm the brother of James. James would have been a leader in the Jerusalem church. He more than likely wrote the epistle of James, which we have, the letter of James, which is in the New Testament. And he is not here. You would think that if you were the half-brother of Jesus, <laughs> you would actually put like, I'm Jesus' bro, okay? I would probably. And why am I saying half-brother? Just to be clear, Jesus did not have an earthly father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary, and she conceived that way. So he does not have the same, likely most, most people agree that Joseph is the father of James and Jude and the other two brothers. You want to go check this out, Matthew 13 has this information if you want to go look at, at his brothers and their names. So what we see here is that, he, what does he identify as? He identifies himself as a servant of Jesus Christ and his brother James. And then secondly, the identity of the believers he begins to unpack in the rest of verse 1. So we got, he introduces himself and who's writing the letter, which is kind of good because, you know, it's from somebody reputable. He has connections to Christ. He has, he's, he has witnessed the resurrection. And that is one of the hallmarks of a letter that we believe to be inspired. Then in verse 1 it says this, to those who are called. If you got a pen in your own Bible or you got something on your app, go ahead and circle called. To those who are called. The next word you need to see is beloved in God. 
or beloved. If you go ahead and circle beloved. And the next word it says, it says, to those who are called, circle that. Beloved in God the Father, circle beloved. And then, and kept for Jesus Christ. Go ahead and circle kept. Those are really important words. We're going to come back and look at those for a second. And so what, what, when we, let's tie all these things together for a second before we move, for, move, move further. We all, this Ancestry.com thing has become a big thing. People are asking that question, well, who am I? And people are giving all sorts of different answers to who am I. And what Jude is going to do here is going to show the believers who they are in Christ. And that is going to show them how they should live, what they should live for, and what they should be against. So I want you to know something. Your identity really matters. Not just your identity culturally, economically, socially, but most importantly, the greatest identity and the biggest deal about identity is are you in Christ or not? And I want today, hopefully, what Jude does is he shows the believers who they are, the blessedness of what it means to be in Christ. In fact, we don't use this enough, but like the word behold, like if you said that to somebody, you say behold, they would look at you like you were a weirdo unless you're at a Renaissance festival, and they're like, oh, that's normal, okay? Behold. But I, sometimes there's only, they've got to use words that can kind of get the idea across. It is something so beautiful. You behold something that's really beautiful. You don't just look at it. It makes you stop in your tracks. It's like we were driving home the other day and the sun was setting out here and we saw the horizon that it was, it was orange and, and red and blues and it was just wonderful masterpiece. That's when you say, look, which is kind of our way of saying, behold. you, you got to stop and look at it. And what Jude is doing in this situation, he's going to address this problem of people coming in teaching false things. But the way he begins to address the problem is by showing the believers who they are in Jesus. And it is breathtakingly beautiful. Because they, God, does not, God does not owe any of us anything except for judgment. But he lavishes grace upon grace on us. And so Jude, who once rejected Jesus, now is a slave of Jesus and brother of James. He writes to show, to unfold the beauty of who God has made, the new identity he has given to believers. And then he starts off, in verse 1, it goes on, it says, to those who are called. This is, a, this is like a word that's used a lot in the scriptures. Um, there are two types of call in the Bible. It's not like, uh, these are the way that theologians identify them. Here's the, the identifying marks of the names. doesn't really matter, but it, what, except for the fact that in context, you can show that there's two different meanings of the word called in the Bible. And the one, the first idea of called here is the idea of a gospel call to everyone. What do I mean by that? We preach the good news. What's the good news? That Christ has died for our sins according to the scripture. That he was buried and he's been raised and he's been seen by many and now he's ascended and he's coming again. And how does one come out of sin and into, into life? It's through faith in Jesus and his gracious work on the cross. That is the good news of the gospel. And so what happens every Sunday when we get up and we preach, we got to present the gospel in some way, and we call every Sunday, say, repent and believe. That's what the call is. It's a general call. It's to everyone. If you hear this good news and you know you are in sin, then you come and you believe. That's called the general call. It's all throughout the scriptures. You see people when they preach, they say, come. You know what I'm saying? It's like, come to dinner. 
The dinner's prepared. Come on. Are you hungry? Come on. So that is the idea of a general call, but this is a different kind of call. This is the gospel call that is called the, that theologians have termed the effectual call. It's the call of Romans 8. And let me read that to you, Romans 8, 28 through 30. In fact, I'll go start in verse 20. Well, we'll start in verse, uh, Romans 8, 28, because I guarantee you when something bad happens, if you know the Bible in any way, you're going to know this verse, okay? Guarantee you. If something bad happens, you're going to say this, okay? And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. Amen. It's in there. Absolutely. I bet you said it this week, okay? Bet you have. Then verse 29 and 30. Some deep stuff here. For those whom he foreknew, talking about, if you go look at Ephesians chapter 1, it's very clear, the foreknowledge happens. It's the same as foreordination, and it happens before the world began. Now, we don't understand God except for what he reveals to us, but here's what happened. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. It means before the world began, he foreknew and he predestined those who would come to do these next things. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of God, image of his son. He's obviously talking about believers. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, I want you to know something. Your name was written down in the Lamb's book of life before the world. Now, that means there would be a situation. You'd be born in sin. You would be in real danger of, of hell, but the gospel would be preached to you. And you will, be, you will believe. Why? Because it's God's predetermined plan. And what can stop his predetermined plan? Nothing. All the, all the, if you go back to, the, even if you want to just be clear that nothing stops the predetermined plan of God, just go back and look at Jesus' death. The religious leader's like, we need to shut this Jesus up. Let's kill him. Pilate was like, I need to shut these religious leaders up, so let me kill Jesus too. What happens? It played into both hands. They actually did the will of God even though by, by crucifying the Son, who would be the Christ? Nothing can stop the plans of God, okay? So just know this from, from Romans 8. For those whom he foreknew, he predestined that he might be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now here's the idea of called in verse 30. And those whom he predestined before the foundation of the world, those he said they will become sons conformed to my image, those who will be believers, this is what he says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And then it says, and those whom he called, he also justified, which means he made them right in Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. I want you to know something here. These terms are very explicit, and this it can be a hard truth to understand, but it's pretty simple in Scripture. And it's this. God chooses, he always has, and he predestines. And when he does that, he accomplishes his plans by doing what? He calls. This call is not the general come. Now, they would have heard the general call of salvation, the gospel being preached, but the called ones of God, they are, it's a, this calling is a calling you can't resist. It's a call, you know why? Because it doesn't say those who are called might be justified. What does it say? They will be justified. And then it also says, not just justified and right with God, they will be glorified. Glorified is the Bible way of talking about they will be with God in the new heavens and the new earth with a new body. It's not maybe, it's not a, it's not a I, I think it'll happen. It's, it, it will happen. And there, there is this, let me see, we believe this. 
but it gets uncomfortable for us sometimes because a lot of people get squirmy about it because you just don't want to trust God is what it really amounts to. And so here's what I want to get. We've sung this a lot, and, and, and it's in old hymns, even by hymns that people that say they wouldn't believe this doctrine. Okay, there's a guy by the name of Charles Wesley wrote this song. You gotta listen to these lyrics, okay? It's gonna be a little archaic language, but you listen to this, and it's like, this is the gospel, okay? And this is awesome. Is it, bear with me, a little archaic. I know you're gonna say the, and you're gonna like zone out, because he said a word I don't under, like, I haven't heard that one in a while. That sounds like, just bear with me, okay? Listen to this. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night, Thine eye diffused, God's eye diffused a quickening ray. I awoke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off, my heart was free. I arose, went forth, and followed thee. That is the calling. Left to your own devices, you will choose sin, and you will not come to God ever on your own. Don't believe me? Read the book of Romans. Nobody seeks God. No, not one. Read the Bible. We are bent. We are dead in sin. And the only way we can escape from the prison of death is the effectual calling of God in which those whom he predestined, he works in their lives, they hear the gospel, and they come to life. And then they follow him. This is, this is the Bible, okay? It's all throughout the Bible. Ephesians chapter one and chapter two. For by grace, you know this one. For by grace, you, this is Ephesians chapter two. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourself, of works. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. Even the faith to believe is a gift. So I want you to get this. If you are in Christ, if you are a believer, it was his will. And you heard the gospel, and he drew you to himself. And you, if you were left to your own devices, would still be running after your sin. But he called you, and you cannot resist that call. Oh, what a good news. Because who would turn from their sins? And how, who, who would on their own? How many of the people, I mean, it's just, it can't happen on, it's, we're bent towards, we love sin. We love it. Until he makes us not love it. And that is the beauty of this word called. He, he tells his, and it's seen throughout scripture, okay, I don't want to just take this, this, but this word called right here is, it refers to God's saving call that is irresistible. God's setting his affection and drawing you to himself. It's a biblical idea, and it is a beautiful idea. And the fact that God would seek you out. There's a, a lot of times we ask, I've heard songs about, what have I done, Lord Jesus, that I would deserve this? Nothing. Nada. What would make you think you deserved God coming to earth in human form and being crucified for you? Like, you're pretty cool people, okay? But I wouldn't die for you. All right? I know. I mean, I'm following a biblical idea here of Romans chapter 5. Maybe for, a, maybe for my family, I might die. But God died for his enemies. I mean, this is big time. This is huge stuff. This is groundbreaking understanding when you realize that your salvation, because so many of us want to think we had something to do with our salvation. It is all the work of God. 
It doesn't mean we don't respond. It doesn't mean our will is not involved. But I want you to know something, that when it comes to the awakening, we sing about this still. When it comes to the awakening, when it comes to the drawing, when it comes to new life, it is nothing that we do. It is all his work, and we respond in faith. That's the faith is the way, it's the arm with which we grab this promise that's already ours because of Christ. That's one of those things, that's like a sunset. You don't just like, well, you don't look, you go, behold, you're called. Secondly, belabored point, but nonetheless important. He says those who are called. Now, why am I making a big deal about this? Am I making a big deal about this because, you know, we need preacher stuff to talk about on Sunday morning? No, this is actually unusual, okay? The first part of the letter is usual, okay? The first part of the letter is where, and especially in this particular time period, they would introduce themselves, and he did. He does. He introduces himself. The second part is usually have, like, it says usually it says his name, it'd be like Jude, and then greetings, and then whatever. But the New Testament writers, they add something in every one of their salutations, every one of the things, and it, cha- it changes. It's not normal, so it gets us to look. And so he is very much, and I just want to belabor this point just yet again, he very much cares about what these believers understand about themselves. They're called. And the second thing, here's the word, they are. They're called, and I told you to circle, beloved in God the Father. If you have Probably a better translation of that because of the tense of the word beloved, which is a verb here. It's a participle. That doesn't matter to you, but here's the major thing I want you to know. It actually should be translated this way, beloved by God the Father. And then the second one, because of this, there's a perfect participle, which I'm going to discuss in a minute. The, uh, The next one, it should be beloved by God the Father and kept by Jesus Christ. There are two things. First off, I want you to know your identity, you're called. It's a sovereign work of grace. You don't deserve it, but he calls and he, he brought you to himself. You probably even came kicking and screaming, but he changed your heart, changed your affections, made you alive. That's the effectual call of God. The second thing I want you to know is that, the he, that you are beloved in God the Father. Beloved by God the Father. See, election and this choice, this choosing and the calling of God is not arbitrary. It's not, it's not without his love. He looked upon you in love when there was nothing to love. He looked upon you in love, and he called you anyway. So not only is God's election his sovereign will, and it's a calling out of death to life, but it also is full of love, and we are loved by God the Father, the very one we have rebelled against. That is good news. So not only if you are a believer in Jesus Christ are you called, but you are loved by God. So that means, I want you to know this, this idea of loved, the, the, the tense of this word right here in the Greek language actually means a lot. It's, the word, it's a perfect tense, okay, and it's in the passive voice. So here's what I want you to understand. God is acting. God is loving you, okay? That is the, that is the sense of passive. He's the one doing the work. You're not loving him, therefore he loves you. No, he loves you, therefore you love him, okay? I know that's flight control arms that's happening, okay? But that's what you need to know. Jesus would even say it. I chose you, therefore you chose me. I loved you first. Okay, that's the idea. Okay, the love of God is from him. It's initiated by him. It's his love for us. And the second thing I want you to know, this idea, this word is in the perfect tense in Greek. And here's what that means, okay? This is, it's, a, it's action completed in it's a completed action that has ramifications for the future. I want you to know this. You are, if you are in Christ, because you were called, you had nothing to do with it, you are perfectly loved, and that means anything that happens in your, in your life, it's coming from a loving God. You hear me? 
He's sovereign, and you're beloved. You are beloved. And I want you to, let me give you an illustration of what happens when we, when we fail to realize that God loves us as his people. I want you to hear this. I w- we were in the car the other day, and Judson has gotten into this bad habit where he calls us mean whenever we correct him, okay? Judson's my four-year-old, okay? I know you've never had that happen to you. And so here's what happened. He said, Daddy, you're mean. I wasn't doing anything. And I was like, dude, I had enough. And I said, well, I'm not telling you this is good parenting, by the way, just caveat. I said, well, if you think I'm mean, I guess I have to go be someone else's daddy. And it got real quiet in my car, and we didn't even think about it for a while. Then we turned around, and homeboy was in ugly cry, like silent ugly cry. <laughs> Big tears. <laughs> and I go, buddy, what's wrong? You're going to be someone else's daddy. And I'm like apologizing, like, no, no, not, no way. Uh uh-uh, uh, I love you. I will never stop loving you, man. I, you, I will love you forever, you know. And my love for him is nothing compared to God's love for us because we were rebellious. And I want you to get this this, there, this, the language here, the Greek language is pregnant with meaning. And he wants his people to know that he wants these people to know as they are in this time of trial and they're going to have to contend against people who are preaching a different Jesus or a different gospel. He wants them to know that you are called out, that you are secure, and that you are loved. And then, second thing he wants us to, or the third thing he wants to see here, he says they're called, beloved in God, the, beloved by God the Father. And the, the, the second one is kept by Jesus Christ. Guarded is the word, kept. The idea is safeguarded. Here is the good news. Because you are called, not according to your will, but because of the sovereign will of God, and because you are loved, not because there was anything lovely in you, but because of the gracious love of God that is never ending. It's the same idea here. This is also the same type of language, the perfect participle here for kept. That means you are constantly, forever kept by Jesus. His salvation is all his work. He called he loved, and he keeps. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to persevere. In fact, he's going to call them to persevere. But the reason we will continue to persevere if we're, if we're Christians, persevere, what do I mean by that? When the bad things happen, when our faith is tested, when, we, when on the dark nights of the soul, when we can't see, and when our faith fails, it's seeming to fail. And when we, also, when we, when we struggle with sin, and it's dark, and we struggle and struggle and struggle and keep losing and losing and losing, we can run to this thing that he will never stop being our father and he will always love us, not because of ourselves, because of his promises in Christ. And if we persevere, it's the only reason we persevere is because he has kept us perfectly. You are destined, bound for heaven if you are his. He does not leave us orphans. And this is going to be very important. And then he goes on in verse 2 and he says, May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. He wants mercy to be in your life. He wants peace to be there. He prays that love will be multiplied in this, believer, this group of believers. This is important because there in verses 3 and 4, there's, he's going to give them something to strive for. Because they're in Christ, because they behold the beauty of who they are in Jesus, they need to strive for contending for the gospel, the faith once for all delivered, and then they also need to do this. They need to know what to strive against. Oftentimes, the knock against Christians is this. We're, we, don't, we are always against something and not for something. 
Now you can fall off the fall off the horse into a ditch by following that. And that's there's some truth in that statement. But if you don't if you don't if you're not careful, then you won't talk about what we are against because we are both for and against things. I don't know why we're the only people who can't be for and against things. Everybody is for and against something, right? But Christians, you can't do that. But we want you to know you are for and against something, and your identity will show you what to be for or against. And so our identity in Christ shows us in verse 3 that we should be for the good news of the gospel. In verse 3 it says this, beloved. Remember that idea of love comes back in? Although I was very eager to you to write about to write to you about our common salvation, all of the words called, beloved, kept, all refer to God's work of salvation. And so Jude really wants to write to these people about the glories of their salvation. He can only write it in part because there is something he needs to appeal to them about. In verse 3, it says, I found it necessary. Okay, this is uh, this necessity here has the idea of necessity out of great distress and trouble. Uh, you're in trouble. There's some troubling issues happening in this church. We don't know where this church is, but there's some troubling issues that are happening there. And so he says, I find it necessary to write to this group of believers in this church or churches to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so he gets right down to the point here. Beloved, this is who you are in Christ, and I'm writing this to you because I found it necessary because there's some trouble happening in your church. And I pray this, because of who you are, I'm asking you, I'm appealing to you, I'm begging you to contend zealously, vigorously for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So first off, I like to talk about what this, they're supposed to contend for what? So remember, our identity shows us what to contend for and what to contend against. The first thing I want you to see here is the idea of what you're contending for is the gospel. The number one thing that you need to contend for in your life, in your work, in your home, in your family, the number one thing you need to struggle to put out, the th- number one thing you need to struggle to put before you in every sense is the gospel. That is what he terms here, the faith once for all delivered to the saints. The idea of faith here is not just the idea of trust. It has the idea of it's the whole gospel. It's a term talking about all the doctrines of Christ, about the fact that he is the God-man, that he came to earth to die for sinners, and that he, has, he, is dead, he was dead, buried, and raised, and he takes the penalty of sin there, and that you, one comes to faith in God. One, one comes to salvation in God by faith, nothing else, no works. So that's what he's talking about. And so he says, I want you to contend, strive for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And it would be very clear, it's clear in the scriptures, Hebrews chapter one tells us that, that G, and God has spoken definitively in Christ and has given us the gospel. Secondly, we can see all throughout that this faith once for all delivered came to us through the apostles, those who witnessed Jesus' ministry and who under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit wrote the New Testament. On top of that, we have the Old Testament, which has been attested to be from the mouth of God through God's mouthpieces. And so I want you to get this. The faith that we, our faith, has been once for all delivered. Anybody ever have a problem with getting a package? We live on a dirt road 
and nobody can ever find our house. Like UPS and FedEx, it's like a different person every time. the The post office won't even come down our road because it's not a you know typical road, and so they have they have, they put these little things in my box, okay, that say "Come get your package, idiot." Okay, they don't say idiot, but it's right there. So I want you to think about this. I got a package. It's been delivered. Like the package comes, am I gonna call Amazon and be like, "Hey, I got the package. I'm waiting for the package to show up, sir. You're insane. Your package is there. I know. I just you just said it was. Yeah, I know. I'm waiting for the package to show up. Do you realize how I'm? It should sound stupid, because it is. I want you to be very clear. The faith, what we need to know for all life and godliness, the Second Timothy chapter three would talk about. The inspired word of God, it has the work of God has come to us. We need no other source, and there is no other source source for definitive truth about the good news of Christ than the scriptures and what Jesus has done. There are many out there who put their trust and faith in dreams, put their hope and trust in people, men of God who have uh, visions and who have interpretations and dreams, I want you to get this. It's very clear. Jude says that the faith has once for all been delivered. Faith has been delivered. You don't need to be looking for another package to come in. You get what I'm saying? This, the faith, the, the gospel, the good news about Christ has been delivered to us by God, the Word, his, Jesus, and it's come to us through his apostles who witnessed his ministry. And we've seen it foretold in the Old Testament. I want you to hear that. He says, I want you to contend for this faith. There's not going to be anything added to the gospel. If anyone adds to the gospel, it is, it's death, okay? The gospel has been once delivered. It is the way, the truth, and the life. The good news about Christ has come. It's been once for all delivered to God's people as ambassadors and as mouthpieces of it and as those who are saved by it. And he asked these people to, because of who they are and because of what the gospel has done in their lives, because God has worked through it to bring them to salvation, he asked them to contend vigorously. I think that is a, probably a good translation to contend earnestly, vigorously for this faith, the good news of Christ, to contend for it all day long with as much vigor as possible. And I got that when, we, when, I, was, um, when I was in uh, high school, uh, we did this thing every Monday. We called it Servant's Heart, okay? And so my youth pastor, we would all get together, and we would bring shovels and gloves and stuff, and a bunch of teenagers would go out, and we would do work in the community like yard work. We would sometimes do it for people in our church who could not. A lot of times we did it for just random people who we were trying to share Jesus with, okay? And it resulted in some mini bee stings, a lot of blisters, um, uh, some really fun times, to be honest with you, and just some great ministry that uh, I'm glad that I had a chance to be a part of. There was one time that we were all up to this house, and there, a lot of times you would show up, and people would be like, no, I just can't have you do anything for us. And then you would roll up to somebody who, like, oh, you want to work for me for free? I got you something, okay? And so there was this row of bushes, and they had very, and this is in Florida. I don't know what they were called because I don't know about horticulture or agriculture or anything. I'm just, just I'm not, I know you're surprised, okay? And there were these, these bushes with these really deep roots. They're about this high. And this lady wanted all of them removed. And there was like 12, 13. And I was the only one who, 
at this time, I was the oldest one in, in this little section of the group that was coming, and I was the only one who could, like, really go at these bushes. So I spent hours. With it. We didn't have anything but a shovel, and it was like a half-beaten-to-death shovel, and I'm hacking these things and trying to pull them up at the root, and, it, and my fa- it's, it's Florida in the summer, so it's 150 million degrees. I mean, it's the face of the sun, and the humidity, it's like walking, I mean, it's like swimming in the air. The humidity is so bad. My face is red. At one point, I tried to, t- we tried to tie the roots, or try the, the, the bush to the church van and drive off. And we are sweating and just nasty, and our faces are red. At least mine was. I don't know if I was right. Good job, Matt. Okay. And, and so I just remember just contending with these things to try to pull them out. The word here, contending, the word group in, in, in Greek, it, it, we get the word agony from it. It's used a lot, talking about striving in sports. And striving, and we all know what it means to really strive, to really work hard. And so Judah's telling these people, because in light of who, who Christ is, in light of the fact that he has saved you through his gospel, he's called you out of darkness, that he's loved you, that he's, he's going to keep you, I pray that you would contend, that you would work vigorously, that you would work as hard as you can to contend for the gospel, the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that you would work hard to put that in every area of your life, contend against wrong teaching, and make that visible in every part of your life. See, here's the deal. Once you realize how much the gospel is good news, you want other people to know the good news, and you're willing to work for the good news. Now, some of you, you think I'm calling every one of you to come up and preach and be pastors, and no. Okay, that's not. What I am saying is this. Whatever area of life God's called you to, contend as hard as you can. Go hard for the gospel. Whatever you do, whether you're mowing lawns, teaching school, working on, working on as a contractor, go hard for the gospel and where you are. Always put the gospel first. Always think about your thinking because the world wants us to think differently. Our culture's idea is is different. The idea of loving your enemy, the idea of loving someone who, blessing someone who persecutes you and turning the other cheek, these are not ideas this world holds. And what we have to do is we have to continually Go again, go to the source, go to the scriptures, go to the faith once for all delivered and contend for the gospel in all areas of our life. And he wants them to do this in the face of people who are running away and, and trying to t- take other people with them from the good news of Christ. Okay, He says, I attend to you. His, here's who you are. Because of who you are, here's what you should strive for, the gospel in all of life. And so because of that, here's what you should strive against. Remember I told you, as believers, we are for the good news of Jesus, that anyone, anywhere can come to Christ because of his death, burial, and resurrection. We preach it. We want to live by it. We contend for it in every area of our life because we see how great it is because of what he's done in that. And also, here's what we strive against. And here's what we strive against in verse 4. He talks about certain people. You probably know certain people, don't you? You talk about them a lot. You know, those people. And he's using certain people on purpose. He probably knows their names. But he just doesn't want, that name shall not be spoken here, okay? And this is a derogatory sense in which he uses it. For certain people have crept in unnoticed. They've snuck in who long ago were designated for condemnation. 
Get this real quick. He is writing against these people who are teaching a false gospel. The New Living Translation has a great idea about this crept in. I noticed they said they wormed their way in. There are people, and especially there are some people who appear to be godly, but who are certainly not. How would you test that? You test that by what they believe and what they say they believe and how they exercise their beliefs. I can argue something that you don't believe something unless it changes you. And so these people are worming their way in the church, and what Judah's going to do is expose their wicked deeds and to show these people that they need to contend for the gospel and, lie, and, 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 and contend against those who are preaching a different gospel, contend against those who have wormed their way in the church and who are causing trouble. And so verse 4, it says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for condemnation. Who designated them for condemnation? God. Where was this determined? In the Old Testament, there's been types. There have always been those from the very beginning who have gone against God. And here's what I want, God, I want you to know something. God is not surprised when people come against him. This, the, why? He designated them for condemnation. So he's not like, oh, no, people are. God is not insecure, folks. He's also, he's also not taken by surprise. These people who are coming in the church, he knows. And he knows the way it, it, God, God has designated them for destruction. And then it goes on and it says this. They are ungodly people. So I want you to know a few things. Here's what we should strive against. And I know this is going to sound ridiculous. We should strive against being ungodly. <laughs> well, that's groundbreaking. <laughs> but I want you to get this idea. Ungodliness means that you do not put, you do not, put the reality of who God is and the weightiness of who God is in front of your eyes at all times. That's what these guys, they have no fear of God. They have no sense of God's presence. That's why they are sneaking in and trying to take people away from the true gospel of Jesus, the faith once for all delivered. And so we need to live and we need to strive against the, the living like there is no God and striving against the, the, all of the worldview and, and the things like that who have come out there and says there is no God. It leads to death. So we need to go against ungodliness. That's what we see here. Secondly, I want you to see about these people have come in. They pervert the grace of God into sensuality. There are going to be some real uncomfortable parts as we go through this book. And one of the facts is we're going to have to speak, not explicitly, but clearly about the idea of perverting the grace of God and sensuality. Here I want you to know something. If you look at cults or you look at anybody who perverts the grace of God, more times than not, some form of sexual sin is going to be involved. Sexual desires are real. Sexual desires are intense. And sexual desires are powerful. And here's what's happening. We don't know exactly what his opponents were, were doing. But we do know one thing. They were abusing the grace of God so that sensuality could abound in the church. We don't know if they were using their religious appearance to get women in the church to sleep with them. That would not be outside the realm of possibility. We don't know if they were telling people it doesn't matter what you do in your body because the spiritual is what matters. And that's definitely hogwash throughout the Bible because what you do in the body, it, we, are, we are a unity of person in the sense that what we do in our body matters in eternity and it matters spiritually, okay? So that's definitely not true. So we don't know if they're doing that. We don't know exactly, but we do know this. 
that they are using, and we don't know if they're abusing the grace of God in the sense that, hey, God will forgive you because he's gracious, and you are called and kept, and because of that, you can go on sinning. That's ridiculous. That's not true. And plus, the, the very fact of the goodness of God's grace and salvation, the calling, the, the loving, the keeping that he does, makes us want to obey him out of love. And so whatever they're doing, I don't know what it is, but they are trying to trick people and pervert the good news so that they can carry out sexual desires that are against God. And I just, let's just be clear. There's no beating around the bush here. Sexual sin is a problem. And I want, to, and I want you to know something. Sexual sin is a problem for both heterosexual and homosexual. And one of the problems the church has had is we have not pointed out all the sin that is all sexual sin in nature. And I'd just like to just do that real quick, just put it out there. Bible calls, you got a problem with it, let's go, we'll talk about it, but in the Bible is what it is. Bible calls sexual sin any sex outside of the covenant of marriage. Any sex. That can mean cohabitation, people who live together like they're married. That is sin. Secondly, it could also mean pornography because Jesus is very clear about that, that the person's lusting and there's some kind of sexual act happening. It would be prostitution. We see that in 2 Corinthians. And it talks about a believer committing prostitution as joining that person to the body of Christ, which is really weird imagery. We go on, we talk about homosexuality because God has made and ordained things so that in and, and his sovereignty that one man and one woman relationship is marriage, and that is the only right way to express sexuality. Adultery is seen as a sin in the scriptures. Unbiblical grounds for divorce is seen as an area where you can commit adultery. Jesus said that. Here's what I want you to get, though. First off, don't forget the grace of God. Because there's forgiveness in Christ for all of those things. You just can't continue in it. The second thing, if you, hear, if you have somebody who is there and is continually telling you it's okay and they're doing it in a spiritual way, they're continually telling you it's okay, they're lying to you and they're not being biblical with you. Sin is horrible. Sin is empty. Sin will lead you down a road that is bad and awful and will lead you to death. And so I want to be just clear about that. And these people are using the grace of God to do that. Second, thirdly, I want you to see this. They're ungodly. They, they, not only are they ungodly, but they pervert the grace of God in sensuality, and then they say they deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Today is mine and Amy's uh, 12-year anniversary. We've been married for 12 years. Pray for, thank you, thank you. That, pr- she's, she stayed with me for 12 years. It was awesome, okay? So I want you to know I'm about that, okay? And here's what I want uh, just to think about for a second. If I walked around and said I was married and took a, had a picture of my wallet that I was married, okay? I, I said, to, but I acted differently than that. So I was, you know, on, you know, some, you know, on Tinder or doing all these things, trying to date other people, and I'm saying I'm married. Would you think that I was married? Only in name only, Okay. See, here's what I want you to know. These guys were, were probably not denying Christ explicitly because they were still in the church. And I guarantee you, if someone stood up in this, in this building today and said, Jesus is not the Son of God, we'd be like, all right, we need to talk to you outside, okay? You're not gonna, that's not going to be, that's not going to happen. If I ever came up and did that, you have permission to, like, hit me with something and, like, take me out the back and beat me, okay? That is, we would not, we would not tolerate that. We would not tolerate somebody saying, Jesus is not the Christ here at all. 
However, these people are not denying, it's very obvious, I think, that they're not denying Christ with their mouth, but they're doing it with their actions. And I want you to know that is the same as perverting the grace of God. See, the Lord has called us to obedience, not as a way of salvation. Remember, salvation is a complete work of him, but it's out of our gratitude for that salvation that we live holy. And the signs of someone who's false are those who pervert the grace of God and who, who denied the Lord and Savior by their actions. I'd like to conclude with this. Amy and I, it was an anniversary, probably f- four or five years. I can't remember, six-year anniversary. Judson was just born. He's four. I can do math. It doesn't matter. We'll talk later about the exact date. But we're in a TGI Fridays, okay? Late night. Judson's a little boy. It was for our anniversary. We went to TGI Fridays. He had fallen asleep. I mean, he was like, he was munchkin little. I mean, he was newborn, like two months. And she, we had fall, like, she had fallen asleep, and we're eating food, and it was great because we were brand-new parents. We're actually getting to eat a meal together. It was awesome, okay? We're sitting there, and our waitress comes. She's a sweet, sweet girl. She starts talking to us, and before long, she finds out that I'm a pastor, okay? And I don't usually try to leave with that because I told you sometimes it gets awkward, but she found out. And before I know it, this girl is sitting at the table with us, our, our, our waitress, okay? And we're talking, and she was like, and, and she kept beating around the bush and hemming and hawing about, she wanted to, it was evident she wanted to talk about the things of God, but she didn't want to like, she's like, I'm your waitress. You're, and I said, what's the deal? Obviously, you want to talk to me. I mean, you're sitting at her table. What's the deal? And she said, I grew up in a Christian school. I grew up hearing the things of God. And I struggle with same-sex attraction. And I want God in my life, but there's this desire that I have that is is taking me away and I can't go to a church and I've been looking for churches that will accept me and I and I and I said hold the phone listen as, as someone I want you to know and she's at this point she is crying Amy's got her arm around her the manager's coming over because it's getting awkward because this girl's now she's an ugly cry <laughs> Amy's crying and I'm like about to cry and the manager's like what are you doing to my waitress and I'm like I, she sat down okay so we're talking and I was saying, I said, I'm sorry that people have been ugly and treated you wrongly. Because some people, in, they, instead, of, instead of working with her and helping her in, in her walk with Christ and helping her come out of those sins that she struggled with, what they had done, they had condemned her and they had put her out, okay? And so here's what happens in this, in this story. I told her, I said, honey, you don't need the people who are going to condemn and you don't need the people who are going to tell you it's okay because they're lying to you. I said, what you need is the people who know Jesus, who can tell you that your sin is not okay and it's going to lead you to death, but to say there's a way to know God that is beautiful and it makes those desires that you have seem, though they are strong, they're not the overarching desires in your life. Do not listen to people who will tell you lies that are easy to believe. And do not listen to people who will tell you about all the things you've done wrong and not tell you the gospel, because both are true. The gospel is beautiful, and we should strive in every area of our life to be faithful to the gospel and contend for it in every way. And we should strive with everything in us not to pervert the grace of God and not to deny the grace of God and the goodness of Jesus Christ as Master and Lord in our lives. May that be our church's 
battle cry. That we are gloriously saved and we for the gospel and we will work for the gospel till we are red in the face and we will work to the go- we will work in the gospel like we're trying to pull out shrubs with an old old shovel and that we will not we even though we fall in sin we will not use the grace of God as as a excuse to sin but we will not and we will not deny our lord and savior by our actions but we will honor him in everything we do because he has called us He has loved us in God the Father, and he keeps us in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, you are good, and your love endures forever. Call us out of darkness in the light, God. God, if there's someone here who doesn't know you, we pray they would come to faith in Christ. God, for those of us who do, we know that we've come not by our own doing, but by your gracious calling and your loving and your keeping. And God, we pray that we would contend for the gospel this week and VBS and all throughout our lives, God, and that we would not deny it by perverting the grace of God and living how we want to live, but that we would live with a sense of who you are at all times. Jesus, you are good and you are Lord, and we love you and we want to honor you with our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.